You're now listening to episode 120 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here today with Neil Bawa, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. This podcast you're about to listen to is actually a crossover episode from our other podcast, The Staying Power Podcast, where we talk to guests about the challenges they face as they grow their business. And in this specific episode, we discuss Neil's secrets to building a team of virtual assistants, including where to look for VAs, what factors to look at when hiring, and managing a team in a virtual environment. We also discuss why Neil decided to start a multifamily investment business in the first place and the challenges he faced along the way. If you like what you hear on today's podcast, go ahead and check out the Staying Power podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts iHeartRadio, YouTube, and wherever else podcasts can be found to hear more interviews from real business owners about the challenges they face and how they overcome those challenges. But for right now, without further ado, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Hey, Neil, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Could you give our listeners a little information on your background? Yeah, certainly can do that. And thanks for having me on the show. Um, So I am a technologist. I'm a geek. You know, I'm in Silicon Valley, uh, had a successful tech career. I've had a successful technology exit and uh, got into real estate in reverse. Uh, Most people get in basically because they want to do single family rentals or because they want to do fix and flips. In my case, it was because my boss asked me to help him build a custom campus for our tech company from scratch in 2003. So over 12 months of fire hose education, I learned how to build a 27,000 square foot, $6 million building from scratch. So that was uh, introduction to real estate 101 or 101, 102, 105, 106, you know, and, and all of those. Yeah, and the, the 201s and the 301s. Quite the introduction. So, you know, right now we understand we you own a business, Grow Capitus uh, mm-hmm. Investments. Uh, yep. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what that business is? Sure. So um, Grow Capitus both buys and builds multifamilies, industrial, self-storage, and student housing projects. They're usually fairly large. The average project is about 200 units. We build them and buy them in nine states in the union. None of them called California, even though I live in California. And we have about 500 active investors that are invested in our projects. And those investors are in 47 states in the country. That's a pretty sizable operation there. So why did you decide to start the business in the first place? I didn't decide to start the business. I fell into it. I mean, there's so many parts of my story that have been a fell into something sort of, you know, part of the story. So maybe I can take a couple minutes to answer that particular question. So we were doing this thing with building that new campus and uh, I was learning lots, you know, things that I know that most multifamily syndicators don't know because they've never really built anything from scratch. And I started to fall in love with real estate and specifically in love with the depreciation benefits of large commercial real estate. You know, in 2004, you know, because I was a partner in that project for the first time, my salary was at a peak and my taxes were, you know, lower. And I really enjoyed that, even though I wasn't getting all the benefits because I wasn't a real estate professional. And that got me really excited, got me hooked to real estate. 
And then we went on and built five other campuses over the next three or four years. And, you know, by the time 2008, 2009 came around, I felt like I was really ready for real estate to jump in on my own rather than just building campuses for my company and investing in them. And my family was telling me that I was completely insane. I mean, you know, I have this huge, you know, massive family with 40 people all telling me when I was talking with them about how excited I was in real estate, telling me how much of a fool I was and how, you know, they would never talk with me again if I put any money into real estate. But I'm a data scientist. I'm a computer science graduate. And I was looking at the numbers and I was saying, so you guys were all investing in real estate two years, three years and four years ago. And now when I'm looking at real estate, it's so much better. It's massively better. And you're telling me not to invest? And they're like, yeah, 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 we know better than you. You know, you, we've invested in real estate. And I was like, no, what these people are not paying any attention to is the mathematics, the math, right? So a lot of real estate is really all about the math. So I decided that I would prove them wrong. And I did that by buying 10 single family homes in a single year. So I didn't want to just say, you know, I bought this one off because then my family would be like, no, you got lucky, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to buy 10 of them and make 10 of them successes to prove my point. So that's how stubborn I am. So, you know, and we can go on with that story if you want. But the goal there really was I got into real estate on a dare because my family was saying stuff which clearly to me was wrong. I felt like they were wrong. You know, so the first thing I, I got in on a dare and then when the time came to switch five or six years later into real estate on a full-time basis, not as a passive investor or as a single investor, that really came about because of a challenge that I took upon myself, an obsession about figuring out the best cities and, and markets, uh, best cities and neighborhoods in the United States. So we can talk about that, but that obsession was what led me to real estate, not any kind of plan. That's Interesting. You wanted to jump into real estate and your family, all 40 of them were telling you no, some even it sounds like threatening you. I mean, how do you, I feel like that's a relatively, sadly, a relatively common story among entrepreneurs is that somebody that they love or trust has kind of not given them the confidence to jump into whatever business venture they're exploring. And how do you deal with that? How do you go in with the mindset that I'm going to prove them all wrong? I mean, does that sort of situation not fill you with a ton of self-doubt? It does. But I, I think that whenever I'm filled with that self-doubt, my mantra is to basically say, everybody started at the same point as me. Because there's nobody that I know of that started, you know, unless they have generation wealth, right? Which most people don't. Everybody starts at the same point as me. And so when I say that, and I say it to me myself very often, and I, I say it to myself, you know, not just with regards to business, but anything that I'm starting that's new, one of my favorite mantras is to reset my brain and say, everybody started that way. And if they didn't proceed, then no one would have ever done what I'm about to do. Absolutely no one in the world would have done it. And I think that if you say that to yourself, your mindset changes and you understand that doing new things is always scary. But doing new things is how you bring value to your life. Yeah. And I was reading an article recently that was shared with me about an entrepreneur who talks about six things that he, he like wrote it for his family, his friends and his employees, like how to work with me better type of thing. And he's like a super successful entrepreneur. But one of the things that he talks about is you have to understand from an entrepreneur's mind that they evaluate risk very differently. So your family might look at it one way, but you might look at it in a completely different way. Like for me personally, I always viewed staying in a corporate job, working in my cube 
being boxed in as more risky than being able to call my own shots and see where it took me. And a lot of people don't resonate with that. They think that that is super risky, what I did. But it's just kind of like an inverse relationship with risk that I feel like a lot of people can't really wrap their mind around. So whenever I hear about something like that, especially if there are entrepreneurs going through it, I always try to remind them like your friends, family, loved ones, they don't see it from your point of view and they won't for a while. You do have to go out and prove them wrong. But once you get to that point of proving them wrong, they're going to wish that they were in your shoes. So the tables will turn eventually. (laughs) Right, right. So, so I I mean, here's another way of looking at this, right? So there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are sitting in that secure job and saying, you know, I've got this, this day job and this day job is secure. This day job is low risk. My argument to you is that you're absolutely unquestionably wrong. We live in an environment where security of jobs goes downwards with every passing year. In the 1980s, if you came out of a good school, IBM would basically interview you on campus and pick you up and you'd work there. Well, that was more, more like the 60s or 70s. But even in the 80s, most people coming out of good schools were getting jobs at good companies and staying there for four, five, six years. Today, the average American stays in a job for 17 months. Things have changed a great deal from the, you know, I get a job at IBM and I retire 35 years later with pension. Those pensions are gone. Even our 401k plans have been watered down. And so when we look at what has happened, the world has changed. The security of a JOB has actually declined massively, has declined tremendously. You know that the average graduate today, inflation adjusted, is making about $20,000 or less than a graduate that came out in 1982 right? And we all know this, the master's degree is the new bachelor's degree today. If you look at how much money people earn with bachelor's and how much they earn with master's today, they're equivalent, right? Maybe slightly above still. But the point is, you need now more education. You have less job security. You're probably going to stay in a job less. And here's, and, and none of these is as important as what I'm about to say now. There aren't any jobs that I know of in the US, unless if you, you know, become a rock star, that give you financial security later in life. So when you're saying that I'm not taking a risk by having a job, you're actually saying to yourself, I'm going to take a greater risk, a much greater risk of zero financial security at some point in the future. So all you're doing is you're kicking the can down the road. And I teach my kids this. I teach my kids, I say this, It's very important to go out and get a job for a few years so that you learn more about corporate America and how large companies or mid-sized companies work together. That process of working together in a team is extraordinarily important and everyone must get it. But then within the first two or three years, and, and go to a couple different companies because you want that different flavor, different culture, different feel, different experiences. But by the time you're done with four years of J-O-B, it's time to go away because for the rest of your life, for better or for worse, you need to control your own destiny. I've said this to my kids in, when I'm taking them to school dozens and dozens of times because I strongly believe in it because every passing years, the security of jobs is dropping and it's dropping in an insane way. And we haven't even hit that technological peak by the point where a humongous portion of US jobs are outsourced. So my fundamental beliefs are that within the next 15 years, all driving jobs in the US will be gone. That's about 7 million of them at least 75% of retail jobs will be gone. And then they are going to then start automating other jobs, which are a little bit harder to automate, or they're going to basically have virtual assistants doing those jobs using large screen monitors if human beings are required. 
bottom line, many, many more jobs are going away. So the folks that are not being entrepreneurs are actually taking a much greater risk. It's just that risk increases over time. So right now it may be small, but over the next five or 10 years of your life, that risk is going to grow massively. Love all of that. And and when I think about this, I think about it in three tiers. You have the entrepreneur tier who they take all the risk. They go out and start something where people have told them it's not going to work. They try, keep trying, keep trying. They believe in themselves and they don't quit. And eventually, ideally, between luck and, and skills, they hit it big, right? And they create this team beneath them. And beneath them, you also have entrepreneurs. And I think that I've hired a lot of entrepreneurs. And so these folks aren't necessarily folks who want to take the risk that I took starting something from scratch, trying to build a brand, do the marketing, do the sales, do the tax returns, do the tax planning, do the accounting, managing employees, finding staff. They, they don't want to take all of that risk, but they do want to take risks in the sense of they don't want to work at an established company like PwC or Deloitte or KPMG. They want to be part of some sort of growth engine to set themselves up for something like that in the future that you were talking about where there is some sort of financial reward or some sort of financial stability at the end of the day. And then the third tier, you have people that are just almost grinders, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, they're just, yep. they're just job that they're going and getting a job. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with that. There's always going to be jobs out there. There's, there's always going to be a need for people to fill those jobs. But those are the folks where, you know, their financial stability is largely dependent on the amount that they're able to save month after month after month. And anyway, whenever I think about this stuff, I also think about my team and the company that I've built. And it just reinvigorates the drive that I have to grow big time because I want to pull all of them up with me and give them exactly what you're talking about. Because my fear, my fear is that one, one of these days, somebody on my team is going to look up and go, man, I work at a cubicle, even though we don't, but I, I work at a cubicle and uh, this kind of stinks, you know, the exact same revelation that I had when I was at PwC and Ernst Young. It was a, man, this kind of stinks and I don't, I don't really see how I can create the wealth that I'm looking to create. So that's my fear. And as a business owner, I actually think it, it's a, a <laughs> somewhat unique in the sense that it drives me to pull all my team up with me so that I can keep them on board and keep showing them the vision and showing them how we're all going to accomplish this together. But yeah, so I, I love what you're saying there. Now, I kind of want to switch gears just a little bit. How, how big is your company today? And let's talk in terms of like maybe employees or, or even sure. outsourced employees. Sure. So I have an extraordinarily deep rooted belief that today the right kind of company, the right kind of org chart has to have both a remote component and a localized component. So our company has eight people in the United States and 16 people in other countries. And those eight people in the United States are also in different metros. So, you know, California has got the biggest chunk of them just because that's where we started. But there's people in other parts of the of the U.S. as well. And I believe that this one third, two thirds model is phenomenal. It's extremely painful when you get started with it because because of the way that you have to grow and because of the fact that most people don't know how to make things work with virtual assistants. So we have 16 full time virtual assistants. They all work U.S. hours, so 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., unless they're attached to a property and then they work that property's time. And um, none of them are allowed to work like as, as consultants. It's like you're an employee just like us. You get you know holidays, you get time off, you get all of those, the, the typical benefits, but you work your nights because in, in our case, the vast majority of those people are in the Philippines. Some are in India, but the vast majority are in the Philippines. And 
that org chart of 24 people, I believe, is, is really one of the key strengths of our organization. And the fact that two-thirds of our employees, don't call them contractors, don't call them virtual assistants, we don't use them that way. Um, the fact that they're offshore gives us an incredible scale of growth. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I have any lower payroll than any of my competitors. I don't. In fact, I would, I would argue that if you took five of my competitors and we matched up our org charts, we're spending the same amount on payroll as they are but we're getting more out of it. So there was no intention at any point to make this about saving money. It isn't, and in fact, you might end up spending a little bit more. It's about boosting your growth, 10xing your growth. We've been able to do 16 syndication projects in the last two years, and we know of maybe one other company in our entire nationwide space that's done 16. That's uh, incredible. So I, I want to talk about the virtual assistants or sorry, the employees, because that's what you call them, the outsourced employees. I know that Tom and I have a lot of questions to dive in here, but I want to start at the top. You said that at the beginning, it's painful to set up. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit and, and talk about some of those pains you experienced and how you overcame them? Absolutely. There's two reasons why it's painful. The first one is you. We are not used. We're not set up. We're not structured to work with people that are remote, especially if they're not from the same culture as ours, right? So the Filipino culture is very different. It's a very soft, very polite culture. They tend not to make suggestions unless you really push them. So it's a very compliant culture. And that's a problem because Americans, by our very nature, are very non-compliant people. And so there's a cultural clash. And so very, very difficult for people to do that. We grow up learning that when I want to bring in an employee, I'm going to have that employee shadow some existing employee, or I'm going to have them shadow me. They're going to sit in the chair next to me, and we're going to talk. That is actually the most inefficient, the most non-scalable way of bringing on employees, but it's the standard. It's the standard. And maybe 90% of employees in the US are hired that way. What really should be the right way of doing things, and that's really your first roadblock, is understanding that there are better ways to onboard employees and better ways to train employees and better ways to hold them accountable. And the first hurdle is really learning that. When as a company you learn that, you become super powerful because you're onboarding a different way, you're holding people accountable a different way. So that's, you know, to me, that's the first hurdle. The second hurdle is that the overall quality of people working as virtual assistants, now I will use that word, is indeed low. A lot of people have had bad experiences. A lot of people have felt that they didn't get value for their money, even though they were paying 20% of what they would pay in the US. And there is something to that. There is something to that because people who are willing to work nights for years are probably not going to be the most impressive people that live in those countries. So there's something to that. And so what people don't have is a quantitative step-by-step way of figuring out exactly how to wean hundreds of candidates and figure out the one in a hundred or two in a hundred that are highly superior candidates. Those are your two roadblocks to basically making this work for you. With these virtual, could you like dive deeper into your process and how you decide whether or not the virtual employees are, are the right fit for your company? Sure. It's really not about fit. Obviously, there's, we interview a large number of them. So the first thing that we do is we standardized our platform and we standardized on a platform called Upwork. There's cheaper ways to get virtual assistants like onlinejobs.ph or onlinejobs.in. But what we found was by staying with one platform that has a lot of tools to monitor these employees and gives us data about how productive they are, it made an enormous difference to the outcome. So the first thing is we hire them through upwork.com. 
The second thing is that on Upwork.com, you have, let's say just in the Philippines, you have probably have 200,000 people. And what folks have not spent any time on is actually going into Upwork.com and filtering for quality. And so what we did was we spent a lot of time in our company learning how to filter Upwork.com for quality by experimenting with many different kinds of virtual assistants by interviewing them and seeing if that improved quality. Luckily, all of this is recorded. We have a seminar. It's called, you know, it's on our website, multifamily.com. So we took this and it's, it's not one of those seminars where you're basically talking like I'm talking now. It's not one of those seminars where you're doing PowerPoint decks. It's a seminar where I'm actually running you through a 15-minute demo of specifically how to use filters in Upwork. I can tell you that our filters, and it, it takes maybe three minutes to, to use those filters, our filters bring the total talent in the Philippines from 200,000 to 2,600 people. So it filters it down to 1%. And those are the only people we go after to interview. So it's very hard in a podcast format to give you the answers to that, but they're straightforward filters. So I'll just give you a little teaser. Number one, we only hire people that have worked on Upwork.com for at least 30, well, sorry, for about 3,000, 4,000 hours. So that means that they work two years full time. We only work with people that have had at least 20 different employers on Upwork which means that they've understood a lot of different companies' systems, processes, software. They've gelled with a number of different providers. They've made the necessary changes to their lifestyle and so on. So, you know, there's all of these filters. And as you go through those filters, we look at people that where their, their feedback, Amazon style, their feedback is over 96%. Most people think 90% feedback is good. I can tell you 90% feedback is pure garbage. You would never want to employ somebody that has a 90% feedback on Upwork. We try to stay as close to 100 as possible, but because we hire so many of them, we end up with you know 96% being our cutoff, though I'd say that two-thirds of our employees are over 98% in terms of their feedback, which is such an incredible, incredible feature. I mean, I don't know Thomas Castelli. I don't know what he's working like. You know, so maybe at the best, if I want to hire Thomas, I have to basically go to Brandon and say, hey, Brandon, how's Thomas? And Brandon might say, you know, yeah, he's good. Or maybe Brandon doesn't want to, you know, seem like an evil, you know, ex-boss. So he's like, yeah, no, he's really good. Right. And (laughs) say that again. I said 91. (laughs) 91. There we go. 91. So he he says 91 is 90. The point (laughs) is this. Where can you find a place where you can look at American employees and see for each employee dozens and dozens of ratings and comments from past employees. We all love Amazon ratings, right? And they're not perfect, we know that, but they're a million times better than just going to some no-name website that has no reviews. Because I've done that and I've come up with you know, horrible purchases. That's why I trust Amazon. Well, Upwork has those millions of reviews on these people. And we don't just look at the star ratings, 96% and higher, we actually go in, click on it, and actually read the reviews. And when we read the reviews, here's what we are not looking for. So here's a bad employee. This is going to shock you. It says, employee was on time and completed his work as per directions. Bad. Employee did what he was asked. Bad. Here's the only kind of employees we ever invite to interview. This is a phenomenal employee. This was a star. This was a superstar. Of all the people I've hired on Upwork, this was the best. Those are the people we look for. And now we end up with 0.1% of the top virtual assistants in the world. 
Wow. I mean, that's pretty extensive uh, to drill down that deep. And it's funny how these online rating systems, how, how much it can vary from 90 to just 96%, you would, mm-hmm. you would imagine. But I mean, I guess that's just the nature of those types of systems. So once you hire, once you hire these people, you bring them on board, you decide to make that move. How do you manage them once they're on board with your team? So when you're managing people, First, you have to understand that the process of managing other people is really all about you training yourself. 90% of management is about what you do, not what other people do. And so we found that we had to really understand ourselves as managers. And we realized that we are not the kind of people that will go write 20-page manuals on step-by-step instructions. So we started searching for some very, very simple, very, very quick ways of giving instructions to employees. And we found two different ways. I think I can demonstrate both of them to you. So I'm going to click manage here on my phone so I can actually show this to you guys and and you'll be able to hear it. But before I show you that one, what we do is we use a tool called Loom. Loom is a plugin into Chrome, right? So when you're opening the Chrome browser, you've got Loom on the top right. And whenever we want to give people instructions, whenever we want to give them a process or a task, the first thing that we do is we click on Loom and we click record. And now, just like you know, this podcast is being recorded, it records our screen, it records our video, and it records our audio. And now we start talking about what it is that we intend to do, all the different things. You know, We might open a Google Doc. We might start saying, well, put this in this spreadsheet and put this in this row and make this pivot table, blah, 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 blah. And think about it. If you're just talking for two minutes, even with all the oops and a, oh, let me start over again, even with that, in two to three minutes, You can go through the same content that would normally take you two to three hours to write with screenshots. So we do not write manuals. We record visual manuals. And then what we do is when when we click on stop, Loom immediately sends a copy of the video to the cloud and it, it copies the URL of that video into our clipboard. So now we open an email, a new email, type the employee's name that's supposed to get this information, and then we do something that's magical. Here's the part that most people forget. So let's say I'm supposed to be giving instructions to Brandon, right? So I record this three-minute video. Hey, Brandon, do this, do this, do that, open this spreadsheet, blah, blah, blah. And then if I just send it to Brandon, there's no accountability because Brandon can choose to do it or choose to forget it. And he can also choose to defer it. Maybe he doesn't forget it, but he just, you know, just, you know, pushes the can down. So we have the following four or five systems to prevent this from happening. The first thing is we never send an email just to Brandon. In the two line, we also send an email to Asana, which is our project management system. Asana allows each project that's in in Asana to have an email address. So for example, if Brandon is my virtual assistant and sets appointments for me, I'm going to type in Brandon, and then I'm going to type in Asana space appointments. And now what is happening is when I send that, and I'm very careful with subject lines, because guess what? As soon as I click send, Asana is going to take what's in the subject line, create a new task inside of that project. It already knows which projects because I use the email address of that project. And then it's going to assign to Brandon this task. Okay. And now Brandon has to go into that task, listen to the three-minute video, and then guess what he has to do first? He has to type out their understanding of that video into the task. So instead of me doing that job, they're doing that job. And when they're doing that job, it means that the onus is on them to really understand the video because they have to type it out, right? And then 
the task is assigned a timeline, right? And by the end of the day, they have to make sure that they've got the due date in there after conversations with me or, or you know, a, a Slack chat with me. And then we have another employee that every Friday publishes a list of every Asana task in the company, all of the people that have those tasks and how many people are past due. We call uh, this public man, I shaming. I love that. Right? Oh, we're going to start doing that. So we call this public <laughs> shaming. So imagine a report. Yeah, public shows you. At, yeah, right? It's like the best motivator ever. When I used ever. to tell my employees, you're, we're showing up with a list of like who's overdue on emails. Guess what happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's phenomenal because you don't really have to ever beat anybody up. I mean, that becomes unnecessary because it is published on a Slack channel week after week where everyone can see who's slacking. That's definitely a pun there. But, but basically, <laughs> this gets published. And then anybody that is above a certain percentage of you know, their tasks being late, those people are then given a random amount of time. So we, we used to say, oh, we're, we're going to check again to see if you've improved it and gone and cleaned up your tasks in Asana. Now we don't. We say, this week, there's too many people that have too many tasks past due. A random check will be conducted. Sometimes we do the random check in an hour, and sometimes we do it the next day. So now people are like, oh my God, I'm over the cutoff, right? Because there's, their row is now marked in red. So now those people run around and, and get their tasks all updated. So by Tuesday, and the report comes out on Monday, by Tuesday, everyone in the company is on time with their tasks. They may not have completed their tasks. That wasn't the point, right? But they know what their tasks are and they can't forget about those tasks. So task management is all about having another virtual assistant. As you can imagine, this is done by a person in the Philippines. Basically staying on top of the project management system so that nobody can be late on their tasks. That gives people a huge incentive to work hard. Well, I think that's like one of the biggest things, right? I mean, everybody uses, well, I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people use some form of a project management system, even if it's just a spreadsheet. And when you start getting employees, you have to figure out how to hold them accountable to the deadlines and completing tasks and, and all that. And I think that you, you've hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the best ways, if not the best way to do that is to simply set the expectation with everybody that, hey... Uh, we're going to post publicly the overdue projects, the overdue tasks, uh, outstanding emails or number of outstanding emails every single week. And uh, it's good to be in the middle of the pack, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you, you do not want to be the one that's consistently... Yeah, late. yeah, yeah. But, but that's good because then you, as a manager, as a boss, you don't have to sit there and go and berate people and try to encourage them and, you know, kind of come on, let's pick up the slack. Let's get the task done. You don't have to do that. They're going to do that automatically or you know i think that in most cases some innate sense of urgency is going to be created as a result because like you said like all right if we're two weeks in the row if we're the last person then that's not a good look so it, maybe it's gone for two weeks but by gosh week number three here i ain't going to be last <laughs> exactly and and if they are then obviously we have a side conversation with them and some of those people are not employed with us anymore Right, so it, right. it really is about, are you learning from the feedback that we're giving you or not? If you're not learning, consistently not learning, then perhaps you need to find another employer, yeah. right? So that's, yeah. that's the approach that we've taken. One okay. other part of this, so, you know, I, I described multiple legs of this, but here's the, the one other piece of this. So we love Upwork because Upwork puts a tracker on the employee's computer. 
And that tracker is both a clock. So if, you know, they, for them to bill any time, they have to go into Upwork, select the employer, because some, some, some of them may be working with more than one employer. And then they have to say start. And now it's tracking their time. But it's not just tracking their time. It's actually tracking to see how busy they are by looking at their mouse movements, their keystrokes. It's assigning a number to every segment of the day. And what we do is we have a virtual assistant that goes into Upwork and grabs every single employee, every single person that's on Upwork. We grab their previous week's data from Upwork on how busy they were, okay? Mm -hmm. And we average it out. And then each day when the employee finishes their day, they have to go into Asana, into a task that's created, and they have to post, they have to post something which says, this is what I did today. And out of a, a ranking of five to 10, right? With 10 being, I'm dying, five being, please, for God's sake, give me more work, right? And, and so on and so forth. They have to put in a ranking every day. And you might say, people have tried that, it doesn't work. Yes, but there's a catch. When people do that, let's say somebody says, I'm an eight every day, okay? Or they say, I'm a 10 every day. They just want to bullshit you and they're not really doing anything. They're watching Filipino YouTube, right? Here's what happens. Each week on Monday, we take the average of their ratings. Let's say your, their average is nine out of 10. And then we go to Upwork.com, download its ratings, and we match them up. And we build a bar graph, one that has an orange line and a green line. Well, we also do the public shaming this way by posting that graph on Monday and saying, you guys all know this, right? The orange bar, which is Upwork's rating of you, has to be higher than your own rating of yourself. If your rating is higher than Upwork's, then you have an inflated opinion of how busy you are. But if Upwork's rating is higher than yours, that's really good because Upwork thinks you're working really, really hard. So people might think, well, yeah, but they can randomly type keystrokes. Yeah, but you'd have to do that all day long, type in random keystrokes. Most people just get to work. So bottom line is now we know exactly how hard they're working because we're matching their expectations of how hard they work with Upworks, putting them together, making it public, making the public shaming obvious who the most productive employees are, and also making it obvious who the least productive employees are. All, all really good stuff. I've got a comment and then I've got a question. So the sure. one comment that I wanted to make is you said public shaming and I, I don't think that that's what you intend. At least that's not what I hear. You know, I, I say that I say that in a, in a funny way. You, you have to understand that I do not intend to shame anybody. Right. But, but it, it's a humorous way of putting in that what we're doing is putting our expectations up front and they're, they're right. very equal. Everyone's being benchmarked the same exact way. I say public shaming only in podcasts. Right, right. And, and, and I think too, though, for anybody that's listening to this, because if you are listening to this, you probably are thinking this is public shaming, especially if you're an employee listening to this, you're probably like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be publicly shamed. But you also have to look at it on the flip side once the initial pain of adopting this type of system is over, meaning that once you've cleared out all those overdue tasks, once you're staying on top of it, really what's going on here is it's, it's empowerment. It's not shaming. It's mm -hmm. the, hey, look, guys, we don't have anybody with overdue tasks. Or, oh, holy smokes, Tom has three overdue tasks. That's not like him. Tom, what support do you need from the team to help you get these across the finish line? that's the conversation it becomes. So it can certainly start by a, okay, you know what? We're so sick and tired of people not being accountable to their tasks and deadlines. So we're just going to post it publicly and that's going to make people uncomfortable. But at least in our experience, because we've tried models of this with different things in the past, what it turns into is more of a 
an empowerment tool than really anything else. And that's really what people are driving for at the end of the day is to empower each other to grow it and is. scale. It is. And, and the, the side benefits are incredible. We've had employees, I mean, normally in a normal company, you see employees just bitching and moaning and complaining about how they're working harder than everybody else. But we have a reverse company. We have employees coming and telling us, hey, I've been looking at the trends. It looks like George, I mean, this guy's just working himself to death. I see what's going on with this guy. I know he's very hardworking. And, and so employees actually start giving us feedback and say things. We've had employees constantly come to us and say, hey, I have a little bit more slack. Can I take some of George's tasks? Now they know where those tasks can come from because they're seeing the impact of what's happening. And then we've also had people who've come to us and said, you know what? I'm not busy enough. Could you really help me? And both of those things are very strong for a powerful company so that you can have happy employees and happy employers. So it, it's, it's all about having a company where things work by themselves instead of you forcing them to, which, which is a standard case. Most, most good actions are being forced. But why force it if you can just have openness and things come into equilibrium by themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. So my question that I wanted to ask, you mentioned that you do these like two to three minute loom videos. Are you systematizing that at all? And what I mean by that is, do you have set training that you make all your VAs go through? And the reason that I ask is I think that it would be difficult to maintain the like, oh, I've got to teach Tom this new task. So do you ever do it once? And that's the only time you ever do it and you add it to some sort of database that now everybody has to go and and watch that video? How does that work? So we used to put it into a database and it became so cumbersome that what we do now is we create Asana templates. So for example, if we are doing a syndication, there's, you know, three to 400 tasks connected to that. So we create a template and that template has all 300 or 400 tasks with the Loom videos in there, right? And so then what happens is when a new syndication starts, the, the plate spinner, my, my partner, Anna Myers, basically goes in, launches that new project, and in a one-hour kickoff meeting, assigns the 400 tasks to different people. Or actually, she assigns subsections, and then you know people go in and, and basically take those tasks on. So by doing that, when a person leaves, all we have to do is take their tasks and assign it to the new person and tell them, go into the tasks and watch the videos. Mm. So they're, they're watching those videos, and all we're doing is issuing... Uh, new versions of the videos and getting rid of old versions of videos. Yeah, Tom, we could do this with Carbon. We we could create these like how-to videos, both internally for our staff, but also externally for our clients with the client tasks too, just like a how-to, you know, use CCH portal or collaboration, especially when we're rolling that out. Yeah, it could definitely be used. And I think there'll be some shelf life to, to them. Um, of course, from time to time, they will have to be updated. But I mean, for the most part, a lot of the tasks are just rinse and repeat tasks kind of over and over and over again. We keep them fairly short because if you tie too many tasks in, then you have to have too many updates, Tom. So it's better to keep Loom videos to about two minutes and you break them. Let's say you have, you have a really major task with five sections. We'll record five different videos. That way, if one section changes, you're not messing with the other videos. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, switching gears a little bit, we do ask this question to everybody who comes on the show. And that is, what is the biggest challenge that you faced in your entrepreneurial journey that almost made you quit and say, you know what, that W2 job, you know, despite all of its, uh, all of its flaws, uh, it looks pretty good right now. 
It happened at the very beginning of my syndication career. So, you know, my tech company is sold. You know, I have lots of money. I try to retire. First month of retirement is awesome. Second month is okay. The third month I'm trying to kill myself, you know, and I'm like, okay, I, I got to go do something else. And I thought about syndication and I'd done a lot of real estate. So I jump in and I, you know, my partner, very smart guy and I be buy a property in the South side of Chicago. And what we were excited about by this property was its potential. It was right next to Jackson Park and a hundred yards away from the property, Tiger Woods had announced that he was going to build a, you know, a championship golf course. And about 350 or 400 yards away, President Obama had announced that the park that was next to us, Jackson Park, was going to be one of the two finalist sites for his library, which isn't a library. It's a $2 billion project with retail, with 20 or 30 restaurants, with multifamily. I mean, it's he's basically building an iconic project that he can be very proud of. And his wife, Michelle, actually lived briefly in one of the six buildings that we purchased. And so she was basically looking to lift that area up. And then there was this other developer, the McCaffreys, who had basically bought the U.S. steel factory a mile down from us and were building somewhere around 12,000 homes on them. So they'd already spent $55 million, you know, creating a roadway access off the freeway. So we're looking at all of these projects and going, wow, this is going to be incredible. This is going to grow. It's going to explode. You know, it couldn't be worse. And when we did that, I think that we overlooked or paid less attention than we should have to the reality on the ground, which was that the area was uh, was distressed. The area had, I would say, had tenants where the quality of the tenant pool was not very good. And so we buy the property and roughly 10 days after we buy the property, I show up at the property along with my partner. And, you know, I'm a math guy. I basically look at, okay, how many leads does this property need? How many, how many leases do you need to sign every week to stay in the 90s in occupancy? Because we needed to stay in the 90s to, for that property to work. And so I did the math on leases. Then I did the math on how many leads the property was getting and discovered to my shock that the property was only getting about 10% of the lead flow that it was supposed to get, 10%. And that our occupancy would reduce very rapidly. And I'm like, but how did the previous owner keep the occupancy at 90% while he was selling to us? Well, very quickly, we figured out the answer that that owner had basically said, oh, you're a lead, you want to rent in my property? Do you have a pulse? Great, you're in. So basically, anybody and everybody that wanted to lease at the property, regardless of a horrible record, bankruptcy, you know, landlords that hated them, never paid rent on time, all of those people that showed up at our property. So we not only had a problem with new leads, we also had a problem with a really horrible tenant community that had to be turned over. And so I looked at the problem and initially I have to tell you, Thomas, that W2 job was looking really, really good. I mean, I was like, oh my God, first project. I, I mean, how is this going to work? So then I thought about it and I said, so what are my skills? What do I know? And the first thing that came to my mind was outsourcing. So the very next day, I hired two teams. One was in the Ukraine and one was in the Philippines. The Philippines team was, you know, phone pounders and the Ukrainian people, their job was to basically figure out every rental site in the U.S. and get these buildings listed on these sites like 10x or 50x more than any other building. And so we did some stuff which most people may consider, gray, you know, gray, borderline gray, and got our sites listed. And I decided that instead of me having the Filipino person pick up the calls, I'm going to pick up the calls. For two weeks, I made 150 calls a day. 
So working seven days a week. So in 14 days, I made about 2,300 phone calls, actual phone calls, had about 800, 900 conversations, scheduled over 100 appointments. Of those, about 60 people showed up at the property, about 40 people signed apps, and 22 signed leases. So me, as the call center dude, ended up signing 22 leases at a property in, I would say, a four-week time frame because it takes a while for people to sign leases. And that really started to make a tremendous impact. And to date, that property, 95% of its leases have been signed because of this marketing aggregation that we did. So the model of the story is, I mean, and, and by the way, it wasn't a great success. I don't have a story to say that that property made huge amounts of money for its investors. No, we struggled greatly. But I can tell you that that property would have been lost to the bank, paid, given back to the bank, all money lost for investors within the next three or four months if we hadn't managed to find a way out. Adversity is not about succeeding. Adversity is about trying. So I'm very proud that we gave it a try and came up with a method that worked. So when you realize that this property, at least initially early on, when you realize that there were issues, you know, you, you were able to turn everything around. You were able to kind of break even with your investors or give them a little bit more back, just not the yep. expectations you had originally set. At what point did you go to your investors and say, hey, this isn't going to turn out the way that I thought it was going to turn out? And how did that conversation go? Pretty much from the very beginning. I think that one of the things that we pat ourselves on the back on for this property. Clearly, I mean, we gave too much credence to things that would happen in the future. And you might ask me, you know, what happened to those things? Well, the Cafferty's canceled, you know, got into a negotiation dispute with the city of Chicago, canceled their project. Tiger Woods said, build the library first, then I'll build the golf course. And the library got delayed by four years because the Friends of Jackson Park sued the Obama Foundation because they wanted to keep the park as it is. Of course, they lost, but it took four years for the library construction to get back on schedule. So the key message that we had learned there was, look, we gave too much credence to what is going to happen in the future and not enough to what was happening on the ground. And if we want to prevent that from happening, we need to be more transparent with investors. So we started giving them monthly updates on how the property was doing, how many evictions there were, how many challenges the property was facing. There were gunshots. We had a fire at the property. We had a person die at the property because of a violent crime. We just chose not to hide it from our investors. We just gave that information to them on an ongoing basis. And I'm proud to say that I still have four or five of those investors that have invested with us in other projects. That's actually the thing I'm most proud of because those people knew that we didn't do well in this project. Those people knew that we should have been more careful picking the property. But because of our subsequent actions, the trust was maintained. Yeah, and I think that's the most important aspect is when things are going, especially if you're taking other people's money, when things are going downhill, you just need to be communicating as transparently as possible. Because we, we have, you know, we work in the real estate space. We've seen, uh, or I guess heard horror stories of syndicators that don't do that. They just, it gets bad and then it gets worse and then the communications stop. And, you know, I don't think that these deal sponsors necessarily set out to steal people's money or commit fraud. They just too scared to face the pain of failure, you know, but not realizing that if they've just been super proactive up front, it probably would all be fine. Yeah, you'd have some pissed off people that you lost their money, but at least they're not coming after you as a bad actor anymore. 
So anyway, yeah. I think that's key. I think that's key. Um, and, and I believe that given that we're going into a recession here, that message, you know, should be heard by syndicators. We've, one thing that I can tell you, my current company, Grow Capitas, we have never one time, and we have so many projects, right? We have 14 projects right now that we're reporting to investors on. We've never missed our monthly update by more than one day. And that you have to make the ethos of your company. If you're looking to be a syndicator and take other people's money, I don't think that you need to be magic. I don't think that you necessarily need to be phenomenal at growing their money because if you, if you were, that would imply you had experience, so you'd never really start. So how would new, new syndicators get started? So as a new syndicator, you may not be fantastic with the experience side. So try to be fantastic with the communication side. Communicate with your investors and, and structure your company around that communication. So we are extremely proud of the way that we communicate with our investors, both pre-COVID and post-COVID. Yeah. And, and so for those that are listening, a syndication is where a deal sponsor, like a person would go and say, I want to buy a $10 million apartment building and I need to raise $3 million to do that. And so what they do is they syndicate, they pool investor capital and, and that $3 million could come from, you know, 50 different people. Right. Uh, so that's what a syndication is. It's a pooling of investor funds. And so the key here is the key stakeholders in the syndication are the investors and you want to communicate proactively to the key stakeholders. But I think that you can take this message and apply it to really almost anything in life. It, anything in life. You can apply it to your family life, but you can definitely apply it to your business, both clients and employees, especially with COVID and the way that things have been, you know, from a business perspective, relatively volatile and, and may continue to be relatively volatile. I think it's better to be as transparent as possible and upfront as possible than the other way around and just surprise and shock people later, especially if you think that you might have to face layoffs or anything like that in the future. It's, you know, communicating that upfront. And that's a really hard thing to do because people have especially your employees, they've built the trust in you. They've, they've, they depend on you for their financial security and to tell them potentially that, Hey, uh, it's not going to happen anymore. And I can't continue to pay you is a very sad and tough conversation to have, but it's better to at least start having the conversations up front, start talking about your numbers up front. Like in, in our company, we post Actually, it's shame on me. I haven't done this in a month and a half or, or I guess two months now because <laughs> we're trying to update a new... We're trying to roll out a new dashboard that just does this automatically. But anyway, I share all the financial numbers of the firm with uh, with my staff. I tell them how much we have in reserves. I tell them what our net profit and what our cash flow is every single month. That's brilliant. They're yeah. all up to date. And guess what? I stopped posting, not because we were doing poorly. We've, we've been actually doing great during COVID. But I stopped posting because we're trying to create a G sheet, a Google sheet that does this automatically. And I've just gotten behind on it. And I've had four of my staff reach out to me and say, basically, hold me to it. Like, hey, what's the update? Where's the, where are the numbers? And you do this and you, you never miss this. And what's, what's going on? So, um, so yeah, so make it part of your culture just to be a little bit more transparent. Uh, I think it's important in a small business. People are taking risks in working with you versus a PwC. I mean, you know, job to job, my business could fold a lot faster than PwC's. And I guess we could argue that all day long, but <laughs> anyway, that yeah, just uh, anybody that has a stake in the project and the company and the financial gains to be had, it's important to communicate upfront and transparently whenever anything starts going downhill. It's beautiful. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about being employee centric 
to me, because I'm a syndication business, I want to be investor centric. And, and, and too many people are property centric in their business. And I think that is not, obviously properties are important. That's where you make your money. But by being investor centric, you will always be property centric because what you're doing is you're reporting very transparently, good and bad to investors, which will really drive you to get returns of the property. But if you're property centric, you might be doing okay with the property. If you're not reporting that to your investors, you're not going to get that positive vibe from the investors. You're not going to get that trust for your future projects and your company won't grow. And the lack of that growth is going to affect your existing projects. I couldn't agree more in the communication with the investors. Same thing with clients. If you're in a client service business, uh, we're coming up here on time today. So we just want to get an idea, Neil, if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or grow capitalists, what's the best way they could do so? So we have a website and it's called multifamilyu.com and, and Brandon's actually been a speaker there. So multifamilyu.com, we started it off as a portal for all things multifamily. And then we sort of grew it to all things multifamily and commercial. So we do between 30 and 40 deep dive webinars. They're 90 minute long, minutes long each year. And we get about, I'd say about 50,000 people that enroll for those webinars. And, and the webinars are on all sorts of topics, but some of the most interesting ones that have the, the most amount of interest. One is um, a method that I developed called location magic, which allows you to figure out the best cities and the best neighborhoods in America to invest in, in 10 minutes on your own. There's no product to buy and no upsell. So come in, enjoy that. And then the other one, as you can imagine, is the one that basically says 10X your business by using virtual assistants. And it is a step-by-step demo-based system, no PowerPoint demo-based system that shows you how to hire virtual assistants. And if while you're doing that, if you, if you would like to invest in syndications, you're going to see information about those on the website as well. So multifamilyu.com is the best way to get in touch with me. The other way is that I'm very lucky and very unlucky in that I'm the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So if you type in N-E-A-L-B-A-W-A, the first 100 or 200 articles are going to be about me. So all the gossip, all the bad stuff and all the good stuff is going to be there. So check it out. Absolutely. So we're going to go ahead and drop that information into the show notes for everybody who's listening to the podcast. Neil, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge with us and you know the challenge you faced as you grew a business. So uh, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.